Good morning. I'd like for you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 5. I've broken down chapter 5 of Nehemiah into two lessons for this week and next week, and I want you to know I've found them probably as uh, convicting, thought-provoking, as anything I've studied recently, and personally that is, and I hope you'll find them very thought-provoking for you and maybe even convicting as we look at some of the things that are taught, very practical, very relevant very day-in and day-out level for us. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful and so thankful that you are as merciful as you are towards me. I thank you for your grace, for your forgiveness. Thank you, Father, for not giving up on me. And I believe that each one of us in here can say the same thing. Thank you for loving us so much like you do. You bring us through all kinds of circumstances. You watch over us and care for us. And you've called us, Father, to be a particular kind of people that our lives might reflect our gratitude for all that you have done, recognizing all that you are doing and holding on to the promise of all that you've said you will do. Father, may our lives in every aspect be reflective of our gratitude our appreciation, our humility, and our submission to you. And as we study, Father, I thank you for the opportunities you've given to me to learn from this. May we also see within each one of us a need where we can give ourselves over a little bit more to you and to one another. Bless our study, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. As you study Nehemiah, you realize that Nehemiah didn't come to build a wall, he came to build a people. And it's interesting to observe that uh, the best way for the devil to impede any progress for him and, and for us is to work inside of our camp, and he will do that. You know, Washington's latest news, Hollywood's latest movies, all of these kind of things, they, they really don't bother me that much. But what, what's happening inside the church really can mess things up. It can slow things down. And I think that's where our battle many times really is. And there are a lot of folks who get just as turned off by the behavior of Christianity as they look at the people and how they behave inside the church as they do from outside. I think maybe all of us have seen examples or know of examples where that's happened. And... It reminds me when I look at little areas that uh, people with worn clothing, people who have tattoos, people who have different kind of behavior patterns are not necessarily immoral. They're not necessarily bad folks. As a matter of fact, sometimes immoral and bad folks can dress pretty nicely, can't they? So it's interesting for us to observe that. I heard about one fellow who took such abuse from being different. He finally said... Sometimes I feel like praying, Lord, save me from the Christians. I think I can handle the world. That's pretty rough. The devil wants to do the best work he can inside the camp of believers. And we've got all kinds of tensions within the church. There are, there are racial tensions. 
There are spiritual tensions that go on, you know, who believes this and that. And uh, Jerry Jones taught me a good lesson last year, among other things. He said, you know, I'm learning I don't like language like liberal and conservative. That's not biblical language. If it's not biblical language, I don't use it. But I think probably the most uh, universal tension that exists in churches may be that between the wealthy and the poor. There's not a church that you can find that doesn't have somebody who's wealthy, somebody who's poor, and people in between who think they're poor and they're really pretty well off. All churches are made up of those kind of folks. But sometimes those who have more tend to want to get more and those who have less tend to want to judge those who have more and hold it against them. And the devil knows those things can affect us and he'll exploit it if he can. And that's why I like the phrase that I found that said it's in sin's best interest to exploit that nerve that runs from our heart to our pocketbook. That's in sin's best interest to exploit that nerve. It's not the hate of the enemies that's bothering Nehemiah here. It's the love of monies that almost stopped the work and the building of that wall. And that still can be a problem today if we're not careful. And I want to point out two things, but one of them sets up the second one. And the first thing I want you to notice is Nehemiah's problem. And that's brought out pretty much in verses 1 through 5 of of chapter 5. And and there are a couple of things going on. There's a labor strike that's taking place. There are a lot of unfair things that are going on. There's uh, been overpopulation and uh, the source of grain is not doing well. And, you know, Nehemiah brought a lot of people back with him. Other people are coming in. Fields haven't been worked for decades. There's just a huge economic problem that has developed itself. They have to, to mortgage fields to buy grain, to, to feed their families. They've incurred large debts that are going on. They've even had to enslave their sons and their daughters uh, to work. And, and you know what's really bad about something like that, a situation that way? There's always somebody who wants to take advantage of it, isn't there? Somebody who wants to exploit that. And, and that's what's going on here. Those who lived through the Great Depression... And the number, by the way, is really dwindling a lot. Know a lot about what it is to do without much. And yet still think, we're okay. But when you take advantage of people like that, goodness. I don't think God ever intended really for his people to be rich. But I don't think he intended for them to be so destitute that we can't complete his work. When you've got famine, uh, exorbitant taxation going on you know they're having to pay the king's tax they've got all these other obligations they've got uh, incredible interest rates going on and we can relate to some of that today but it's a huge problem for them at this particular time and I, I think it reminds us that God is displeased with us when we get into such debt that we can't support the things of God We've got more worldly things than what we need. In fact, a lot of what we think are needs are just wants. They're not really needs. And being in bondage to debt that we can't do the things of God is is just not right. And that would be on one hand. But what's going on here, the real problem, is the exploitation and the greed by their own brethren. Somebody's taking advantage of somebody else's misfortune. And they're going to work that to their own good. And Nehemiah here can't do much about the the famine. 
Maybe even the taxation because the king of Persia is doing that. But he can do something about the exploitation and the greed from brother to brother. That he can say something about and he will. Brothers who take advantage of other brothers are just sad people. They're just sad people. There's also a memory lapse going on here. They had forgotten what God's word teaches. And there are uh, three passages that are really pretty powerful on that. One of them is in Exodus chapter 22 and verse 25. And the Bible would say, if you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you are not to act as a creditor to him. You shall not charge him interest. That was God's standard on how they were supposed to deal with one another. The next passage is over in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Beginning in verse 7. If there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him, and, hand, and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware lest there is a base thought in your heart, saying the seventh year, The year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your brother, and you give him nothing, that he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin to you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. For the poor you will never cease to be, will never cease to be in the land. Therefore I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. I understand that deals with their unique relationship to God. They had a theocratic nation, a God-ruled society. We don't have that today. But there's a principle for dealing with the poor in our own number, and not all the poor out in the world, but the poor among God's people. How we do that and why we do it that way. They're always going to be poor and rich among God's people. And the duty we have among us is pretty clear. The wealthy aren't to to be judging and wanting to take advantage of that and stay wealthy. And the poor are to look and say, well, you know, you just don't care about it. There should be a generous interaction and mingling with the two so that everybody has their needs met. God's plan has always been for those who have to share with those who don't and to do it generously and to, to not take advantage of them. One other passage is in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Verse 19 and verse 20. You shall not charge interest to your countrymen. This is interesting. Interest on money, food, or anything that may be loaned at interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner. But to your countrymen you shall not charge interest. To what the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land. Which you are about to enter to possess. You know, even if that did... uh, apply to Americans in some way, we've, we've missed the whole point on, on what's going on. But the point is, God wants to bless his people. And he uses his people to bless his people. And he works with them to work with one another. The, the, the foreigners could look at the Jews and say, look at that. They're doing great. They're not even charging each other interest. Why is that? Because God's taking care of them. We don't even have to charge each other interest. God's taking care of us, and that becomes a witness and a testimony to everybody else. We help each other out because God's helping us. People should always see a distinction in us that's markedly different from the world's behavior. 
There's a principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that, that they should be able to come in among us and see that God is with us by the way we treat one another, the way we behave. You look at the early church in the book of Acts in chapter 4 and chapter 5, they would sell property, whatever it took to make sure that nobody among them was without. Needs were met and taken care of. But the Jews had forgotten that concept. They had chosen instead to use tactics of the world, sink into the quicksand of compromise. And Nehemiah is concerned about that. He can't do anything about the famine and the taxes, but he can do something about one brother exploiting another brother. So here's where my emphasis is. In verses 9 through or 6 through 13, I want you to watch Nehemiah's solution. First of all, it says Nehemiah became very angry. And that's a good example of justifiable anger. It should upset us when God's pattern is violated. It should upset us when those inside the camp willfully break the standard of God and his word at the expense of their brothers especially. Most think about Nehemiah and they think, well, that's the guy that built the wall. There's a lot more to it than that. His orientation wasn't toward a task. It was toward a people. He cared primarily about the people, and that's why he wanted to build the wall. We're in the people business as God's people. And I think one of the biggest weaknesses we have that I've observed over the years is our lack of people skills. How to deal with them, why we deal with them. People were more important to God than anything else, and they were more important to Nehemiah than a a production schedule or building walls. He realized they were dealing with souls. So he didn't stop the work when he was threatened, but he did stop it to call a meeting to say, there are folks getting hurt here, and that's not good. That's not right. We are to be good stewards of what God has given to us. Take care of our families. and You know, it's okay to place money where it can gain interest and, and it can grow for you. But we're not to make money at the expense of human beings. When we do that, we're walking on dangerous ground, whether it's as a church or as individuals. And exploiting people is a popular thing to do in our society. But never, never can that be done among God's people. And notice the second thing he did. The Bible says he consulted with himself. I like that. He gave himself a little self-advice. He talked to himself and said, let me think this out. I'm, I'm really upset right now, but I want to make sure I do this right. I don't want to just go uh, blowing into the matter of being upset and angry, you know, and that's good advice when you're angry. Stop and cool off a little bit and think about how to handle the matter. And so he addressed them. And when he addressed them, he told them two things. He told them, number one, they were disobeying God's word. The issue here is a lot deeper than conduct. It's a heart problem. There's a lack of respect for God's word. As a matter of fact, look at verse 9. Again, I said, the thing which you're doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? They should have been more in fear and in awe of God. However we handle our lives, make sure we understand we're doing in the presence of God. Our relationships with one another reflect our relationships with God. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20, John will say, you know, if you go around saying that you love God and you don't love your brother, you're a liar. You're abiding in death. You're not doing what's right. Showing that you don't care about brothers and sisters says 
you really don't have the right fear of God that you need to have. And the second thing he told them was they were discrediting God's name. To avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies. They'd lost their distinction among the Gentiles. Here are the Jews who say they love God, but they're going to make a buck and act just as wickedly as anybody else. They were exploiting God's people, and doing that brings reproach on God's name. Your greatest witness and my greatest witness is when we cast reflection on God's name. When our profession is the most pronounced is not when we're in this building and services. It's Monday through Saturday when we're out among the world and they watch us and they observe us. When you hear somebody say something like, you know, they may think they're something, but I've seen how they behave Monday through Saturday. That should disturb you, and I've heard that. Maybe you've heard that. Is there a distinction between our attitude toward money that the world can see, or is it non-existent? Is there a distinction in the way we behave ourselves in all areas of our living? Or is it blurred? When we go out into the world and we pull every trick they do just to make a buck, what makes us different from everybody else? I want you to notice what he told them. He told them three things. In verse 10, he said, make it stop. You do it right now. God doesn't let us take our time dealing with sin. There there was no committee formed to study the problem of interest among God's people. It's not a matter of, of praying about it or talking about it. Stop this sin right now. Likewise, I, my brothers, my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off with this usury. I've got this problem. Need to work on it. Work on a plan to stop this thing. That's just letting the sands of time drift by. That's trying to heal the wound on your own terms. When God reproves us and we say, I'm going to work on that, you're not really doing what he wants. He says, stop it right now. The second thing he says is make it right in verse 11. Please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, their houses, the hundredth part of the money of the grain, the new wine, the oil that you are exacting from them. Give it back. He demanded a return. Restitution. You remember Zacchaeus in Luke 19? You know, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and sell half of what I've got and give it to the poor. If I've defrauded anybody, he said, I'll give back fourfold. You make it right. You give back all these things, the farms, the vineyards, and the interest that you've charged. And the third thing he told them was, in verse 12, make a promise. And look at how he did that in the latter part of verse 12. So I called the priests and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. The priests and the people are made to swear they're going to do it right then. And they did it with a public declaration. And you know, a public declaration is still a good place for that. When you're dealing with sin. When you stand before the people and you stand before the leaders and you say, I've done wrong and I've learned from it. And from this day forward I will do right. That makes a difference. When you say it to God and you say it to the people. I guess when I look at this lesson, I understand there are two principles that I need to learn and that you need to learn. One is that sin should not just be condemned, it should be confronted. 
we're hesitant today, sometimes today, to confront sin. We don't, we don't like confrontation. When we deal with churches and, and with leaders and across our fellowship, we just don't like confrontation. Sins are being committed. I'm watching marriages breaking up and remarriages taking place. And everybody acts like, well, that's just the way it's going to be. It's okay. It's no big deal. It's in sin's best interest to keep silent at those times. Had Nehemiah kept quiet, innocent people would have been hurt. And innocent people are always hurt in the camp when we keep quiet. When the name of God is shamed, his work is impeded, and then we don't confront sin, it gets even worse. You know what's interesting in verses 1 through 13? There's not a single mention of anyone working on the wall while this is going on. Because when sin's in the camp, the people can't be about doing what they should be doing. And if you don't think God's not serious about sin in the camp, go back and read Judges 7 in the story of Achan. We have a vision for 2020 for this church. And I believe we'll not realize it if we allow any kind of sin to go on in the camp or to distract us. You know what's bothered me? The last couple of years I've watched since we enacted this. I've looked at all of the marriage problems we've had to deal with and how it has slowed us down or distracted us from addressing what needs to be addressed in our vision. That should tell us something. We can condemn sin easily, immorality, divorce, abortion, and all those things. But we need to realize somewhere along the line it's got to be confronted because we're called to be holy people. And the second principle I notice is this. Sin should not just be confessed. It should be corrected. You know, we're as good at confessing sin as we are at condemning it. But it's confronting and correcting that makes the difference. We're not just to acknowledge sin. We're to stop it. Well, I guess I have a problem with gossip, don't I? Admitting it doesn't do any good. Stop it. Stop it now. Making excuses for not coming to church services and, and being involved. I'm, I'm tired. I had to work hard all week, you know, and all of those other things. When you decide to be a bad influence because you can't get your priorities straight, something needs worked on. To admit that you've got immoral relationships, if you're not going to stop them, what good are you doing? Stop them now. If you're greedy and you have financial bondage and you're falling behind in obligations to the church, it doesn't do anything to just merely admit it. You've got to stop it. You know, sell the boat if you've got to. Wait a year or two to buy a new car. There are priorities. I ran across this statement that bothered me. A fellow said, you know, I believe if you have sin in your life and you don't intend to deal with it, you need to stay away from this body. Yeah, but isn't the church for sinners? It is. But it's for any sinner who's willing to confront and correct, not condone, and continue in it. That's the church. And if you're going to continue to be in blatant, willful, undisciplined sin and not deal with it, you need to stay away from this body. This body is here for a purpose. 
you'll stop our work, you'll hurt innocent people, you'll discredit the name of God, and we don't need that in this camp. I think we need to realize, you and I, if we've wronged anybody in this camp, don't just confess it, correct it. That's what I've had to learn to do in my life, and I think that's good for your life. To malign a person with gossip, and we do that here. Go to the person you malign, talk to them, and ask for forgiveness. If you've ever taken advantage of someone here financially, and I hope nobody here has ever done that, go back and return the money. If you've hurt a person with your behavior, go to them and ask them to forgive you. You know what's sad when when you deal with something this serious a lot of times is somebody will say, I'm, I'm so glad that so-and-so was here to hear that. This sermon wasn't for so-and-so. The sermon was for me and for you. It's only two people it's really for. Learn the differences between loving sinners and hating sin. And I pray that our leaders will always have the courage and wisdom and boldness to confront, correct, admonish, and discipline sin in the camp in any of our lives. And may God help us commit ourselves more firmly than ever to do what it takes to keep the works of this church going. More than that, keep it growing. You know, there are a lot of ways that you can deal with sin. One of them is you can ignore it. That doesn't do any good. Another one is you can merely acknowledge it and excuse it. That doesn't do any good either. Or you can confront it and correct it. And that does eternally a lot of good. Baptism is that one act where one confronts their rebellion against God, corrects the situation by submitting to him on his terms and asking for his help. Repentance is that attitude of saying, I'm going to turn because I was drifting. And I'm going back to doing the works of God and getting away from just doing what I want. It's changing the behavior, not just coming forward. It's in sin's best interest for you and me to do nothing. It's in God's best interest and your soul's best interest to do the right thing when you need to do that. Maybe you need to do that this morning. If there's some way we can help you do that, all you have to do is come forward while we stand and while we sing.